Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Philip Ree, author of the book, A Boston Schooner in the Royal Navy, 1768 to 1772, Commerce and Conflict in Maritime British America. Philip, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you back on our show. Yeah. I was wondering if you could uh, start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. I am. Uh, I, I would like to say first and foremost to people that I, I'm a writer and then I'm a historian. Uh, I have specialized in maritime history heavily. I look at it from a history of technology perspective, so I ground my work in that field. But I also own maritime history as a specialty, and that's how I was trained. I especially trained as far as uh, space in the Atlantic in the 17th and 18th centuries. And that's where both of my books have been set. And I set out with those first to write a a general overview of the merchant ship in the British Atlantic in that period. And in this book to then take a micro history view to really zoom in close on one vessel and, and write a different sort of book with a strong narrative but that also address the same technological questions and uh, aspects that I was already interested in and that I raised in the first book. So I think they go together well, uh, but they're very different sorts of books. It was a very fascinating read for me because of how you go into, it's not just a history of the ship, but for people like myself who are uh, who are not familiar with sailing, you go into a lot of how uh, ships worked at that time how they uh, sailed, how the, the the things they did, and why those decisions, uh, you know, the, the the ideas and thinking behind those decisions. What led you to focus on the Sultana in particular? What made that ship in particular stand out in terms of serving as the basis of micro history? Two things. First, and they're intimately related. The first is the unusually good records that we had of her because she was taken into the Navy and the Navy being probably, arguably, the first modern centralized state bureaucracy in uh, the British Atlantic world, or at least the, the most advanced in some respects, I think, um, liked to document things. And the documentation that the Navy left has survived to a remarkable degree in the National Archives in the UK. Uh, so the, the, the records of this vessel exist, and that's unusual because your ordinary merchant vessel at this time and place was not built from plans and left very little of a paper trail unless just by accident, perhaps a log was was left in a family collection or something, but that's not normal. And then based on those records, a group of enterprising people more than 20 years ago in the Chesapeake decided they would build a reproduction of Sultana based on the information that, that they had. And they did. And she was launched in 2001. So she's been sailing uh, on the Chester River and all the Chesapeake Bay, Eastern Shore of Maryland for 22 years. So there's such excellent, and what that provides is the potential for learning a lot about how such a vessel behaves um, from actually sailing one. And that, of course, is also not something that we we normally get. So it presented a a really good opportunity to write the microhistory. And then when you get into the practicalities of research, 
I wasn't able to get any big funding to do this. And so one of what made this possible is the fact that the foundation that owns the reproduction, which is the Sultana Education Foundation in Chestertown, purchased way back when they built the replica, the copies of the complete logbooks of the master and the commander, two different people, and the muster books, which were the, uh, the records of the crew and their accounts on the vessel from the National Archives and the drawings that the National Maritime Museum had of her. All of that cost big money. Um, and they allowed me to come up there and use them. So instead of having to find a way to go to England to do this work, which would have been impossible given the fact that I couldn't get real funding to do it, I was able to get small grants that allowed me to go from North Carolina to Maryland twice and spend enough time necessary to work with these materials. So it was a lucky opportunity that I exploited. And it's one that I thought you exploited very well in terms of integrating the uh, the the uh, naval architecture of the boat, explaining uh, what it did, how that both aided and perhaps, uh, you know, made it accomplishing their mission a bit more difficult. And that's why I, I think it might be best if we begin by talking about uh, about the Sultana itself. I mean, what what was, uh, you know, who designed it? What was it designed to do? How was it built? And, and, and how did its eventual role uh, end up deviating from the uh, it, its, its probable initial purpose? Well, there's some question there, some mystery there. So I'll, I'll try to make clear what we do know and what we don't. Um, we know that she was built in the Hallowell Yard in Boston, which at the time was Boston's most prominent shipyard. It had been in operation since the 1630s, so long, long time, since the early days of of uh, English settlement in Massachusetts. We know that she was built as a smaller version of a very common, very popular, and increasingly popular type of, of vessel, the New England schooner, um, which was not invented in New England. It was derived from a Dutch antecedent, as most British Atlantic successful commercial vessels were, but had become very popular in New England, both for trade and for fishing. And this vessel then would have been like so many others built uh, at that time. Where it gets a little unusual is we, when you look at the, what we used, what they used to call the fancy work on this, on this little vessel, the fact that she had quarter badges, which are decorative carvings around the stern gallery windows, that she had stern gallery windows at all, that she had what we call a frigate built bow, which is say, a, a rather decorative kind of complex way to do the bow of a commercial vessel. And you usually see that on more expensive vessels and on warships. And so there's th those things, you know, on the one hand, she seems like an ordinary little New England schooner that would have been run of the mill. Um, but on the other hand, there's these, there's these uh, distinctive aesthetic flourishes that don't really fit uh, with a standard merchant schooner. And then there's her name. Because apparently, I mean, the records make it pretty clear, Sultana was her name from the beginning. It wasn't a name the Navy gave her. And Sultana is, especially in the 18th century, that's an exotic name. It's, um, you know, it's Orientalist, uh, to use uh, Edward Say's phrase. Uh, and and, and it, at that time, most vessels like that would have been given very prosaic names like Two Brothers or Hannah or Betsy or Sally. 
um, to name one sultana, especially a vessel this otherwise humble, is is interesting. So we don't we're not sure whether the Hallow Yard built this thing, thinking they were just going to sell her to uh, a, a normal ship owner, merchant ship owner. It's likely that Mr. Hallowell thought he could perhaps sell her to the Navy. He may have built her with that in mind. If so, though, then how does she come to be owned by Sir Thomas Hesketh, who is a Lancashire country gentleman in England? That we do not know, and we may never know how he came to own the vessel. But he didn't own her for long, because within months he had sold her to the Navy. So whether or not it was Hallowell's original intent that uh, this vessel ultimately go to the Navy, is it clear? He may well have known, have thought that the Navy might want her for the interceptor duty that she ended up performing because we already had six New England schooners in service in that capacity on the North American station. And Hallowell had done business with the Navy before. So... All of this is somewhat speculative. We know that Hesketh purchased the vessel after she went to England, or maybe he commissioned her. Maybe he was intending to use her as a pleasure craft. But but regardless of any of that, he did sell her to the Navy. His wife had connections uh, to the to the Admiralty, which is probably how he managed to get this his offer in front of them. And they purchased her after a survey. And she was uh, put into commission in the Navy in the summer of 68. That speculation about uh, the acquisition, I, I thought was interesting because it got me thinking as well uh, about some of the uh, context that you described. Because the, you're not just describing the history of a ship. You are showing how, as as you, know, you do with great micro history, you use it to show how it informs the context of the times. And as you describe, what's you know, it, it's the, this the ship's construction acquisition is happening in the context of this changing relationship between uh, England and her colonies in America. And and I'm thinking, I, I, I can imagine if if say the Royal Navy had gone to uh, a, a a shipbuilder in Americas and say we want to build a uh, you know we want to we want you to build a vessel for this particular purpose of of, of customs uh, enforcement. I, I can imagine the, the amount of uh, hostility that might have been greeted with, whereas I, I could see how this may have been a more indirect route, you know, which is just kind of speculation that, that got me to thinking about it because of the context you described. And, and I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit more upon that context and, and, and why and how it was that Sultana very quickly became uh, immersed in this activity, which ends up becoming so central to uh, the history of the United States. Yeah, and I think I would start by saying that you you have it, it helps a lot to remember that sympathies and attitudes and ideological leanings were not split by the Atlantic. They were split in all ways. In other words, you had people in Great Britain who did disagree vehemently with each other about the issues that we're going to get into, and we, of course, you had people in in British America who did. Um, we don't know for certain that Benjamin Hallowell, the elder Benjamin Hallowell, the shipwright, was an out-and-out -out Tory, meaning very loyal to the crown, very loyal to the British Empire, um, very much opposed to uh, you know what the American uh, radicals would get up to. But we do know that his son Robert, the uh, sorry um, Benjamin the Third, um, was very much so, 
And it's suspected that the Elder Hallowell had uh, loyalist leanings, as, as they would say later, uh, once things fell apart. So, you know, as I said, Hallowell had done business with the Royal Navy before, uh, had no scruples about doing that. Um, and it would not be the last time that he would do business with the Royal Navy. So the context of Sultanas brought, being brought into service as a customs enforcement vessel um, really need to go back to 1764. So that's like right after, the year after the Treaty of Paris is signed, which ends the Seven Years' War. And so now we have this greatly enlarged uh, British American Empire um, with all of the French session. Um, Canada is now British. So we have... So we have this empire that's now much larger and much more expensive to defend than what was there before. And the British government rightly has the attitude that the war was largely fought to the benefit of British America, that this was something that uh, British America really, really furthers the British American agenda. It makes them much more secure from uh, a French threat, gives them more land, um, and the British government's attitude is we spent an amazing fortune doing this. Uh, the treasury is badly depleted and we're going to have to spend more to defend this new empire and to keep the peace between our own people, the British Americans and the natives who are still very much present and very powerful. Um, and then to do that, we need revenue. And so back in 1764, the Admiralty had told Lord Coble, who was the North American station commander to... Um, acquire six, they as they put it, marblehead sloops or schooners. They didn't care what the rig was or the exact type. They wanted six small New England vessels for the purpose of enforcing customs and collecting revenue in North America. And that had been done. And so this started even before the Townsend Acts were passed, um, which Sultana would specifically be charged with enforcing. So it goes, be, it goes before that. It goes before the state back crisis. And you mentioned earlier some, you know, speculating about hostility toward this sort of stuff. Those six uh, vessels were, were difficult to man because um, New Englanders were not keen to accept such work. They didn't like this business. And this would be a, an ongoing problem and, and a problem that would get worse. I was thinking as, as I was reading the book about how uh, the ship was in some ways kind of ill-suited to the duty. You, rec you mentioned, for example, uh, the design and how it really wasn't suited to catch some of the uh, smugglers that, uh, or, 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 or customs evaders that it might encounter. Uh, you mentioned the, the armament, how the armament was useful to a point, but you know, it, it, it didn't exactly necessarily guarantee them a, a trouble-free existence. And how oftentimes the, the ship found itself in, in, uh, uh, in circumstances that it, it, where it's it wasn't it, you, you could see that it wasn't really a, a purpose-built ship in the way that we might say design a, a revenue cutter or or some other type of ship that 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 serves that role and, and, and to me I, I thought that was an interesting metaphor for how it, it seemed like so many people not just the ship but the crew oftentimes found themselves in that situation I was thinking in particular that one episode you described where you had you know the this the showdown where you had people manning the guns on the ship and how some of them were locals and how and how you speculate how they must have felt being in the situation where what if they might be fired they may be called upon to fire upon in effect their neighbors and and, and what must have been going through their heads to to be in that situation to, to to be confronted with something like that yeah the crew were from all over 
the British Atlantic world. So you had you know, quite a few British Americans in the crew, although interestingly enough, um, I think only one New Englander at that particular time, if I remember right, um, they were a, they were a minority um, of the crew. But they were from, you can assume they were from all over. They, they can assume they didn't all come from the same perspective. Uh, so it is interesting to speculate, you know, what they might have thought about about what was going on. And as for the vessel, she had her pros and cons. She had she had certain advantages. So that, you know, there was an ex, uh, an extent to which her size was an advantage in that she could potentially get into skinny water. Um, although, as you know from reading it, uh, that that was she was constantly using pilots to get in and out of, of tricky water, and as she should have been, that's very dangerous. And, you know, her, her master and pilot in all likelihood was a Scotsman, David Bruce, um, not from America, didn't know these waters. Um, English was from Philadelphia, but he had not sailed into all these places either. And so the skinny water advantage was not apparently all, it, it wasn't great. It's, it's clearer how her small size was a disadvantage in terms of catching larger vessels because all of the things being equal without getting too technical, a vessel with a smaller, a shorter water line length is, is slower than a vessel with a, a longer water line length. So a vessel that was adequately powered and had enough water, depth of water to sail in, um, that was considerably larger than Sultana was going to be able to outrun Sultana if it chose to do so. And you're right, the armament was sufficient up to a point, and I would say up to the point of being a police boat. So... You know, as I, as I point out in there, policing only works when the policed at least grudgingly consent to being policed. And, you know, if if not, then they can flout being policed. And so, yeah, those half-pound swivel guns, they they served them well in that one instance, in, you know, in, in particular when they were able to to discourage the uh, the Rhode Islanders from storming the the schooner that and the, the the men with their small arms that that's not to be discounted when you've got you know a crew of 25 um all of whom are armed that 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 also helps to intimidate your opponents but you're right there you know this is no true warship and and it wasn't that wasn't the intent the original vessels weren't intended to be either and so one of the indicators i think and this also serves as sort of a metaphor one of the indicators of the deterioration of the situation over time is that this these police boats become more and more vulnerable and less 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 and less effective because the willingness of the policed to be policed by these boats decreases their their willingness to resist goes up and so then it becomes a question of okay does this make sense anymore or are we going to have to rely on honest to god warships to do this duty with all of the disadvantages that brings in terms of size, maneuverability, and cost. And, and that's where that context really becomes important because uh, you're, what you describe when, you, when you're talking about what's happening in the colonies in the late 1760s is also how you see that growing justification for resistance, where 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 it, where uh, how how, peop, how you have these uh, ship captains and crew and and merchants who are in effect rationalizing the kind of resistance that it becomes more and more difficult for the Sultana to cope with. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's more of that. Um, and more just outright. I think, I think it's, I think it feeds itself. It's, it's the, the another irony here. I think this story is full of ironies is the more effective 
and and uh, dialed in, as we would say, these interceptors get at doing their job, the more resistance they engender. And so the more, quote, successful they are, um, the more problem they create. And th there is no resolution. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, summarize a, a bit the, 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 the span of the Sultana's existence. I mean, did it stay in, in one place? Was it just, say, stationed in, in Boston Harbor and spent its entire service history there? Uh, did, it, did it travel around? And, and, and how uh, did the crew, uh, uh, you know, respond to, to, that, to the situations in which it found itself in terms of uh, where they were stationed, uh, the, the kind of service they did, and what sort of opportunities they might have given them as well in terms of continuing to serve or, say, trying to escape? And, and how did the crew cope with that? Well, I'll start with the end of that, which is the opportunities that they most often took advantage of was the opportunity to desert. Um, the, the, this, this is a vessel is assigned a complement of 25 by the Navy. And by the end of four years, plus of five months of service, she's had 99. Um, so the desertion rate was very high, even by Naval standards of the time, um, as I get into in there. Um, so that they, they certainly, um, you know, this is a situation where, you know, it's not, you're not signing up for a prescribed tour of duty, right? So it's not like, okay, sign up for a year. Now, you sign up for the duration of the cruise. Well, how long is that? Well, however long the Admiralty wants it to be. Um, we, we don't tell you. We don't even know. Just however long we decide, they decide that we're out here is, is however long your, your, your service is. And technically, you have no legal recourse to leave the service before that point. So it's not surprising that uh, desertion is so high. Um, and this boat is moving around. She goes from Boston to Rhode Island to the Chesapeake to the Delaware. And, and in that time, she moves back and forth between these places as her orders carry her. It's, it's where the, the commander of the North American station thinks he wants her to be at the time and what he wants her to be doing. And then he changes his mind or a new commander comes on. There's, there are three during her time, during her service, three commanders, as I recall, um, at least three. And, and so, you know, they, they sit there, try to evaluate the situation as it's evolving and use their assets that they have as they see fit. So she spends time in New York. She spends time, um, in Rhode Island, Providence and Newport, right around that area, uh, intercepting vessels, carrying sugar products. She spends most of her time in the latter part of the cruise in the Delaware River and around the Delaware Capes. These are the approaches to Philadelphia. Um, so after stints in the Chesapeake and Rhode Island and New York and and a little bit in New England and Massachusetts, most of most the, the biggest span of time that she spends is on the approaches to Philadelphia. And there's a lot of but at this point, Philadelphia is the busiest port on the American Eastern Seaboard. And so there's a lot of traffic coming in and out of there. And a whole lot of the interceptions that are happening there are these small crafts that are just carrying everyday, ordinary, mundane necessities back and forth. Some of which are not even really, well, they're trade goods technically, but they're not imports or exports. They're really just staples that are being carried back and forth. And, and in a lot of cases on small boats that are oared or sailed by two guys. Um, so what you're, you're kind of like, well, why waste the resources and, and time and effort doing that? Well, because 
English and all uh, and his uh, counterparts knew that the typical thing to do is you, you bring in an illicit cargo on a, a larger vessel, you unload it, you lighter it, as they would say, um, into smaller boats, and then you can use those smaller boats to get them to get those cargoes to their uh, intended recipients um, more subtly and with with discretion. Uh, they can get into little places and and hide in little coves or hide up in the marsh creeks or whatever, and so. People like Inglis are, are going after these boats and searching them, looking for illicit cargoes, and they're almost never finding, at least not in in Inglis's case, and for for and, and using all of this labor and all of this time and effort doing so. But that's not all they're doing, of course, because as they do this, they are antagonizing more and more working watermen and mariners along that coast. That's the fast. That's one of the most fascinating parts of the story is that you, what you're charting in in one respect is how it is that people become, uh, how colonials become more and more dissatisfied with being part of the British Empire. How, how increasingly being part of the British Empire is not about protection and being part of an imperial system, but it's this harassment from uh, these these ships that are constantly stopping them and constantly searching them when either they've done nothing wrong or they're just trying to get an honest living and they don't see what why it is that they should suddenly, as they might have viewed it, have to start, you know, paying all these duties and and, and conform to these regulations that had only just recently been imposed. Yeah, there was, you know, we would use the term bad optics now. Um <laughs> there, there, there's a there there's a you're right. There, it becomes easier to see the drawbacks um, for these people on the working waterfront than it than it is to see the benefits. The benefits they had had for a long time. And, you know, whether or not they took them for granted, they, they'd had them for a long time, they were accustomed to them, the benefits of being in the empire. And the American maritime economy was maturing. I would say in most respects, it was mature. It, it would make, it would do some more maturing after independence, but, but only after recovering from that, because that of course was a disaster. Um, but, but it was very largely mature by this point. And so this, the way you, the way you regulate and you incorporate a mature, um, sector of your economy in this imperial system, it should look different from how you deal with an immature or developing um, one. And at this point, the, the way that the British government was going about doing what it felt was necessary to reform the imperial system, um, it didn't look like reform, as, as you suggest, to these people. It looked a hell of a lot more like harassment and um, you know heavy-handed control. And yeah, they didn't see the benefit of that to them. You know, 18th century people are... Um, 18th century people are are very much um, enlightened self-interest, shall we say. They 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 saw. I was listening to a podcast once that I thought made a wonderful point. It's like your your average 18th century denizen of the British Empire saw no conflict between serving himself and serving the king. In in the way things ought to work, he should be able to do both at the same time. And so, the. They didn't. That they were not prepared to surrender their own self-interest as they saw it, or loyalty to the king, or obedience to the government in London. Now, in the book, you describe, uh, among um, so many other things, the the process of maintenance of upkeep and 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 how this boat was maintained over the course of its service, and, and that makes it a, to me a, a little bit more surprising 
that the that the uh, schooner is uh, paid off uh, so relatively early. I mean, the, 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 its, its service basically concludes in the early 1770s. So why, you know, wh what was the fate of the schooner and, and, and why was it that that it had such a relatively brief span of service in, in, uh, in this role? We don't have the proof, but it seems highly likely that the destruction of the gas bay in Rhode Island in June of 72 changed Montague's thinking. Montague was the current North American station commander and he was probably, whether he was under direct pressure from the Admiralty or not, he of course knew full well as well as anyone that there was a Royal Commission investigating that uh, that attack. First of all, the attack even happened, that, that, that a, an armed party planned and executed a the attack on and destruction of a king's vessel, a, a commissioned naval vessel, um, badly wounding her commander deliberately um, and taking the vessel and burning her. So this is a, this is, I mean, it's really, it's an act of war. If you, if you want to, you, you're not, you're not engaging in inflammatory propaganda by saying that's an act of war. Um, and so that really kind of, I think, galvanizes this thinking of, okay, so, or, or, do we need to revisit what we're doing here? And it's, I think there's some amount of coincidence. Sultana was due for a, a real refit. She'd been on hard service for four years. She was starting to leak in her vows. And, and the policy was at the time that these vessels were supposed to be sent back to England for refit in uh, naval yards there. And that was the practice that had been, um, been carried out already. So they sent her back. But as, as you read in the book, Montague sends a letter to the Admiralty and, and basically makes the case that Sultana is unsuitable for this service. And it's an interesting letter because she obviously was suitable for it and the extent that she was able to do it for four plus years and intercept probably close to a thousand vessels. So she, she clearly could do it. Um, and she had cost the Navy considerably less to buy than, than these larger vessels. But Montague clearly wanted to make the case that, um, you know, that, that, that he was justified in, in sending her back. And, and, and he, he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, hey, this vessel's tired. She's due for a refit, um, sending her back as per orders, because he had orders to do, standing orders to do that. But he didn't. He actually made the case that she was not fit for, for the duty, as though he wanted um, the Admiralty to take her out of the service. And I think the only, you know, the, the, the most obvious explanation for that or theory of explanation for that is that he no longer felt that these small scooters, and she was the smallest and most lightly armed of all of them, so she would have been the most vulnerable to something like the Gaspé attack if it were to be repeated. And as was pointed out to me by Inglis's biographer, if it had been repeated on Montague's watch, Montague would have been in the sling. Um, and he had not only his own career to look after, but he had a son who had a command under him in North America. And remember, this is a world that's all about kinship, connection, patronage. Um, it would not have been good for his family for something like this to happen again. And so he was probably very much concerned to head that off. And, and he felt that probably that this vessel was just in the current circumstances too vulnerable to armed attack and that obviously armed attack was something that they now had to contend with. So she was sent back um, to England in the late summer of 72. She was laid up. They didn't get rid of her right away. She was laid up and basically the correspondent suggests that, you know, it would be determined what would be done with her. She sat there for several months um, and 
finally, it was actually uh, August of 73 before she was sold out um, very cheaply. Uh, her repair estimate was not high. Um, it's pretty obvious to me anyway that the Navy let her go for, for quite um, a value price. And the man who bought her was apparently someone who was used to buying things, um, sort of, we would call it military surplus, um, buying things from the Navy as, as they were disposing of them. And he only kept her for a month before he sold her again. So probably he was just looking to buy her and flip her, as we would say, for a profit. <laughs> um, and after that, we don't know what happened to her. So I think the most important answer to your question is, I think it's, I think it's most, the best explanation is that at this point, um, the, the, the Admiralty and, and their immediate underlings are seriously questioning um, the efficacy of this schooner program. They don't abandon it. They also don't expand it. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I am in the early stages of working on a project called Technological Choice in Watercraft in the Early Modern World, um, Adaptation in an Age of Encounters which attempts to uh, see the end product of it as a tightly knit edited collection of collaborators will attempt to look at um, what happens when groups of people are, are encountering and getting to know each other, getting to trade with each other for the first time, which happened globally in this period and not just between Europeans and non-Europeans, but between other, between non-Europeans and other non-Europeans um, and between Europeans and, and European colonials. And how did that affect the technology of watercraft? How you know what exchanges do we see, or what non-exchanges do we see um, as a result of these sorts of encounters? So if, and it's a big, huge, daunting if, I can get the funding for it. Um, that's what I'd like to do. Oh, it sounds like a great project. I wish you the best of luck in getting the funding for it. Thank you, uh, Phil. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Mark. You too. <laughs>